So may I bid you all welcome to the Lord's house this evening. Um, a little later than usual because, well, I presume because of the, those, uh, that traffic accident that happened. But um, let's, just, uh, let's just gather together and uh, call upon the Lord. Let's pray. Our merciful and gracious God, we thank Thee that we can ever approach Thee because of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we will consider a little this evening, it is only ever on the grounds of Jesus. It's only ever because of him, and because of his work on the cross and his perfect life, that we can ever come near thee and find acceptance and hearing and grace and mercy and love. Lord, we thank thee for thy word and we thank thee that thou hast gathered us in. We thank thee, Lord Jesus, that thou art here with us. We pray, Lord, that thou will help us to understand thy word, that it will feed our souls. Lord, that thou will help me to do that solemn duty of opening up thy holy and infallible word. Grant all that is needed that it may go forth purely and with power from on high, that Jesus Christ will receive all the glory. Warm our hearts, Lord. Forgive our sins. And help us. Remember those who are joining us online. Bless them also. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's sing together uh, that hymn, hymn 220. It's on the song sheet, glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God, he whose word cannot be broken, formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. Standing to sing this hymn, please. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, form thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy shore? streams of living waters springing from eternal love well supply thy sons and daughters and all fear of one remove all and faint while such a
Gentlemen, may I say that you did very well on the highlights this evening. The ladies, of course, we just take it as red. <laughs> That's a natural ability. So, but uh, congratulations to you ladies also. Please open your copies of the Lord's precious word to Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians chapter 2. And we will read from verse 8 to the end of the same chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 22. Hear the word of Christ with faith in your hearts. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without, outside of Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes once were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, of two things, one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Amen. And we trust to the Lord to bless his word to us all, and especially now as the word is opened up. And we see, especially this evening, we're looking at verses 14 to 17. 14 to 17, for he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. As we continue then from verse 13, which is where we, we finished last time, we see four crucial and related evangelical elements that are mentioned or referred to. So from verse 13, uh, we see the blood of Christ. But as we enter into these, these four verses, 14 to 17, we see his body, we see his cross, and we see his gospel. When we look at his body, by the way, there are two sides to that that uh, we won't actually go into much. Um, it's more suggested. 
Uh, when we think of his body, we think of his body on the cross, whereby the enmity, the, 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 the state of being God's enemy and God uh, being wrathful towards us is taken away uh, by the breaking of his body on the cross. And that's really the great emphasis here. But it also hints at his mystical body, that is the church, that is everybody who is saved from all time. But we saw the working of the blood and we saw what was happening. That we see that there's, there's a reconciliation here through his blood, through his body, through the cross, and then finally in verse 17, the gospel. And we're seeing this is all the working of the blood. Colossians 1 and verse 20 says this, and sums up a lot of what we've just been reading. He says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Now, Colossians 1.20 is looking at the great scheme of things, what we call the consummation of redemption. That is, the, 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 the complete outworking and completion and perfection of redemption, which is to be seen when the Lord returns and judgment day breaks. But here we're seeing redemption limited to mankind in these four verses this evening. And that's what we're going to uh, examine this evening. And it is, uh, it's done in a threefold fashion. A threefold fashion. In three different ways we're going to see reconcilement. So reconcilement, very briefly, reconciling is where you have two parties, two different, two parties of people or two persons, and they are, they disagree with each other. They are at variance with each other, just to use the more technical term. There is disagreement, there is, they are not friends, it's the opposite of friendship. And yet they're brought together. They're brought together, and when they're brought together, the friendship is renewed, they are reconciled. And so that's the idea of reconciliation. And there is a threefold reconciliation that we see in our text. And it's all achieved by Jesus Christ. Um, I've titled this message, uh, Our Prince of Reconcilement. Our Prince of Reconcilement. And that was really when I was thinking of, of Isaiah 9 and verse 6, when it talks about him being the Prince of Peace. It talked about him also being the Everlasting Father, but the Prince of Peace. But he is, he's the Prince of reconcilement and that we see then firstly in verse 14 reckon him reconciling jew and non-jew to each other we see that in verse 14 for he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us what is that middle wall of partition well, Charles Hodge, he sort of points... Charles Hodge is a, is a, a, a Presbyterian theologian from the 1900s, an American. And he says, well, it seems to hint at what we see in the next verse, that word enmity. That, it's, that they were separated by a degree of hatred. And if we just look at in the history of the God's people, we do see that's the case, still the case today, very much so, between the people of God and those who are not the people of God. There's a separation. And so we see that then, that separation uh, was emphasized when we looked at verse 12 last week. And it says that at that time, ye without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so... The Jews and the non-Jews, uh, in some ways it brings us a little bit back to the introduction on Sunday morning. The Jews and the non-Jews, that great division that there is in the world, and something that the Jews were very conscious of, because they were supposed to be a separated people, as the people of God are still to be a separated people. Uh, but they would separate themselves in a very fleshly, in a very pride-filled way. We are better than the rest, as opposed to having graciously received the revelation of God, having received uh, the keeping of the oracles of God, that is the word of God, having had through the period of time so many um, uh, actual epiphanies, 
literal epiphanies, that is, appearances or theophanies of God actually appearing to their forefathers at different times. Instead of realizing God is gracious, God is revealing himself to us, we are not worthy. That wasn't their attitude. You know, we are worthy. We're Jews. We are of the stock of Abraham. Uh, who, who are you? And so you'd have that, that bad attitude. But you'd also have another attitude from uh, the whole of uh, the pagan world, especially when they came in contact with the Jews. And they would think, yeah, these Jews, who are they? They're looking down upon us. There they are in this little strip of land in the Middle East, and yet they look down upon us. And, and, and the Persians would, 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 would see that reaction and despise the Jews. The Babylonians, the same. Later on, the Romans. Um, and, of course, the Jews were saying, you know, our religion is the only religion, which is a great contrast to how an awful lot of pagan religions were. They were sure that their own personal religion, their own family, better said, their own cultural religion was the best, but they were quite happy, you know, take other things on board at, at various times. But to, but to say that there is only one God and, and, and your God's the only true God, well, they considered that to be absolute arrogance. So they, that gives you an idea of some of that division that there is and there was between Jew and non-Jew. But see how Paul begins. He says, for he, talking of Christ Jesus, for he is our peace. Here we are, the Jew apostle Paul speaking to the Gentile Ephesian believers. He is our peace. Both of us. He's our peace. And that's really what he said to the Galatians also. Saying that Christ broke down that hedge, that wall of partition between us. And in Galatians 3, verse 28 to 29, he says this. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, meaning Gentile. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Inheritors of the promise and there was only ever one people of God. Only ever has been one people of God. That is all those who have believed in the promises of God. And which promises, of course, ultimately pointed to and are fulfilled by Jesus Christ himself in his life and in his death. He's a resurrection in the person of who he is. Living that sinless and holy life that we could not and would not and then dying that death that we dare not. I'll give you just some examples that we think about the Old Testament. I don't know how good your Old Testament knowledge is. So we have the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, but we have others that belong to the people of God. Melchizedek. Now, he was genetically if a heathen. He was a man of the Jebusites. He was the high priest of Jehovah there in Jerusalem. So not of Abraham's seed in, in that way. Well, he couldn't have been because he was a contemporary with Abraham, but you know my point. You see my point. Eliezer, who was uh, a Syrian of Damascus, who was Abraham's servant. Again, uh, not of any particular lineage, but a believer. What about Rahab of Jericho? That was a Canaanite. Absolutely a, a, a cursed people, or even worse... Ruth. Ruth was, a, was of, of Moab. She was a Moabitess. And they was explicitly cursed in the law of God. No Moabite shall enter the courts of God even unto the tenth generation. That's the law. But she experienced grace. These heathens, these Gentiles, these, these not of the lineage of, say, Seth or Noah or well, everyone's of Noah, <laughs> but, you know, not of any specific Hebrew stock. They're Gentiles, but they are foreshadows of you and me. We Gentiles, we Gentile believers. But they didn't form a separate people when they joined Lord's people. They became one with the Lord's people. We see that, uh, where they do become part of the Lord's people physically. Although Melchizedek, as much as we know about him, he remained the king and the priest of Jerusalem, but he was still of the Lord's people by faith. And so Jews that believe on Christ and Gentiles that believe on Christ are to be one people, and they are found to be one people. 
because Christ has brought us together. It's Christ that makes the difference. It's always Christ that makes the difference. I mean, looking at you, looking at me, and we see that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, there is no difference there. We're all condemnable. We're all under condemnation. We're all damnable. But it's Christ that's made that difference. He's brought us all together. He's made of us true Israelites, the spiritual children of Abraham. Do you know when Christ first met the well, he wasn't a disciple yet, but he'd become a disciple. Nathaniel in John, in John chapter 1, he, he says, when he first uh, meets him, he says this, and Jesus, in verse 47 of John chapter 1, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Now, there we are in Israel, full of Israelites. It's not very strange then, is it not then strange to make a point of it? It's like me walking out the door, pointing to someone and saying, hey, a Canadian. That would seem, what's so special about that? Well, it's the fact that he is an Israelite indeed, a true Israelite in whom is no guile. In other words, there's a deeper gospel meaning to what he said. He means he's a born-again man. He's a true Israelite. Because not all of Israel was Israel, but this man was already born again when he met the Savior during his earthly ministry. Now, it's Christ that has broken down this division between Jew and non-Jew. He hath made both one, which is what Paul is saying here. For he is our our peace, Jew-Gentile, who hath made both one, hath broken down the middle wall of partition, There is one redeemed people by one redeemer. And then we move uh, swiftly on to uh, verse 15. We see uh, Christ, he's reconciling Jew and non-Jew unto God. So there's the work of reconciling Jew and non-Jew to each other. But then we see him reconciling Jew and non-Jew unto God. And that is really pointed to his work on the cross. Verse 15 says having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Now, there's an awful lot in this one verse, uh, but we're going to look very briefly at what he means by the abolishing. And he says the abolishing in his flesh, the enmity, And then that word abolishing points to the law of commandments as well. Abolishing the flesh, abolishing the law, even to make in himself of twain one new man. Well, we see then that Christ abolished the law. The law, which law? It's a a twofold law. I think there's somebody at the door. It's a twofold law. And what do we mean by that? Well, firstly, the law of works. The law of works. And also call it the covenant of works. Because it is a law. It's a legal aspect that was laid upon mankind. Now, that covenant of works or that law of works, it already lay in tatters at Adam's feet, but it still has its claim upon us. It has a clear claim upon us. If it had no claim upon us, the, you know, the worst heathen would have no conscience. But they do. We do. And that law of works was the what? It was to live a righteous and a holy life. To live that life as pleased God with no sin. As a high standard. You can see that cannot be filled by a fallen man. But it could be fulfilled by unfallen, holy Adam and Eve. But Adam, he did not. And Eve, she was deceived in not keeping that law. Now, that law of works, now we won't go into that detail at the moment, but let's just say it's understood in this way. It is the moral law of God. It is the Ten Commandments written on the heart of man. It written on the hearts, uh, um, evidenced in the conscience. Uh, but after the fall, that conscience is imperfectly and sinfully understood. But it is interesting if you look at conservative societies throughout all of history, they would all have very similar 
uh, traits have very similar things. And of course, this is used against biblical religion by others. But re regardless of whatever religious or, or cultural context you were in throughout the centuries of human existence, you would generally have laws and customs forbidding false religions, uh, unapproved worship, uh, forbidding blasphemy and profaning holy days, dishonoring parents and authority figures of the elderly. You're not allowed to murder, commit adultery, theft. Uh, they were very much, you see that in almost every conservative culture, and most cultures were conservative uh, until very recently. Now, lying and coveting, you would see some laws for and against that, but they were nowhere near as consistent as the word of God. But the law, this law, as we're considering it now, it, it condemns the breakers of it, that were condemned by it. And so that covenant of works, which we had broken and which condemns us, this Christ kept on our behalf. For he is our peace. And carrying on in verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. In his flesh. Christ turned that... Oh, there's much to be said about when it says in his flesh. One aspect of how he in his flesh, that he has turned that around on our behalf, is he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it absolutely. Here we have the holy and righteous Jesus Christ fulfilling every aspect, every demand, every claim of the law of God, of the moral law of God, and in his case, including the civil law of Moses and the ceremonial law of Moses, everything was kept to a T, everything, on our behalf. So in that way, he, 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 he kept the covenant of works. He kept it and turned it into a covenant of grace for his own people. It's the same covenant. He kept it. Adam should have kept it on our behalf. But he failed. But Christ, as the second Adam, as the last Adam, he has kept it absolutely for us and turned it into that covenant of grace. And that's why we don't, although we have the tendency, because a redeemed sinner is still a sinner, we'll still have that tendency to work, to work to please, to earn salvation, to earn something of redemption to earn something that pleases God, and we still have that. But we don't have to work to please God in that way because Christ has done that for us. He has kept that covenant on our behalf. And it can be sometimes a sinful tendency that we have in how we fellowship with God and, and how we relate to other people that we think that it's by our own efforts and our own works that we truly please God. It's no... But then we're actually robbing, the, robbing ourselves of the comfort of knowing that it's always by grace. Therefore, it is always by Jesus Christ that we have acceptance, that we have peace, that we have reconcilement with God. It's always through Jesus Christ. And it is true that, that a devout walking with God pleases God. It says so in the Scriptures. That keeping his commandments... Um, out of a, of a true and upright heart. Yes, they please God. Performing our duties as Christians pleases God. It does. These things do please God. But when us working to please God, when that rests no longer on God's grace, then it no longer pleases God because the, the idolatrous heart thinks, if I do this, and I do that, and then I do that, that in some way I am meriting something from God. And as soon as we think that we're meriting something, it's no longer grace. And Paul talks about this. You know, works is always works, grace is always grace. If you're working, it's no longer grace. If it's works, it can't be grace. It has to be reward. No, but it's all of grace, because God must get all the glory. But we can sometimes attempt in working. In reality, if we're to look down in our heart and the Lord opens our heart to see, uh, opens our mind to see what's in the heart is better said, uh, that we are trying to bribe God. We're trying to convince God that there's something in us and if we do this, that God will be pleased. But that's something that can be very fleshly. 
It's a flesh-driven way. It's not just a casting of yourself and your brokenness upon the throne, uh, before the throne of Christ. And that can make us somewhat like the scribes and the Pharisees we were looking at on Sunday morning. There can be a, a hardness. You see, if, 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 we're, if we are working so hard, then what are we saying about God? That God is hard and difficult to please. And then our reaction to other people is, means that we can become hard and difficult to please. It's a, it's, a, um, it's a trap that we can easily fall into. Easily fall into when it comes to grace. So anyway, that first aspect of the law was really looking at uh, the law of works that Christ has turned into a covenant of grace for us. But the second aspect of the law, which is also uh, mentioned here, is the law of Moses. That's what we see in that word there uh, contained in ordinances. The ordinances. So the enmity, because we are condemned by the law, the moral law that we've broken. And then he says, and even the law, also the law of commandments contained in ordinances, to make in himself of two, one new man. So of those two aspects of the law, in him are one. And so the second aspect of the law, the law of Moses, specifically thinking of the sacrifices, the rituals, the washings, the, the temple service, everything that's, 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 that's involved in that, these have all been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They all pointed to Jesus Christ. So a second type of fulfillment. So Christ has fulfilled the other in his life and death, but here he has fulfilled them because they pointed to him. And so we have the law of works fulfilled by Christ and we have the law of Moses fulfilled in Christ. Well, how are they fulfilled? Well, I've, I've hinted at his life and his death and that's it, in his life and his death. And of course, when we just talk about the cross, we always mean both. Always mean both when we talk of the cross. Because what is sacrificed on the cross? The holy lamb of God. That holy, sinless, 33 and a half year, perfect man is sacrificed on the cross of Calvary. And that's, that's what we must, and that's, this is what is, is referenced here. There we see in verse 16, and that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile unto God in one body by the cross. There he is fulfilling in his own body, but we do have the aspect uh, that we're reconciled into one body, but that's far more expressed in the verses that now follow that we will be looking at this week. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, the condemnation, the wrath so much more removed. We'll move swiftly on to verse 17 and close with our third point, that Christ is reconciling Jew. We saw that he was reconciling Jew and non-Jew together and then reconciling Jew and non-Jew unto God and then thirdly, reconciling Jew and non-Jew by the same gospel. And that's what we see in verse 17. Verse 17 says, and came and preached Peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. nigh. Well, well, who is this? Well, he is talking of Christ. Christ came. Now, Christ, if you know anything of Christ's earthly ministry, you know that he had scarce contact with Gentiles. Because he came, as he said himself, I've come, um, I've come to, um, I can't remember the exact phrase that he used, but he has come to, to, to the Hebrews. He's come to the, the sons and daughters of Abraham. He had come to the the covenant people of God, to bring them the gospel as he had promised through his prophets for so many thousands of years. But there are a few points of contact that he had. He had certain points of contact. You remember the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4? And then we have the Syrophoenician woman who had a possessed daughter and he refused. That's where he made clear what his, what his ministry was. It was not for the Gentiles. And then she came back and says, even the dogs can have the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And then we have the Samaritan leper. Of those ten lepers that came, uh, there were nine Jews and there was one Samaritan. There was only one that came back and fell on his knees and worshipped Christ and gave him thanks. But the rest of his contact was all strictly with Jews. 
But again, that's a foretaste, isn't it? It's a foretaste, as we saw in the Old Testament, mostly working through his covenant people, but a little foretaste here and there of what he would do. A little hint of the Great Commission. And even in his earthly ministry, again, just a hint of the Great Commission that he would give to his apostles. But it is to his apostles that he gave the Great Commission. So says, now we've, we, you and I, have, have preached the gospel, the, the length and breadth of the Holy Land. Galilee, Judea, even going into the area of Decapolis, uh, which is on the right-hand side of, of uh, uh, Galilee, and touching a few other areas, but, but very much those two provinces that belong to the Jews, Galilee and Judea. So we've done all that, and now, as he's finishing his earthly ministry, he gives the great commission to go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And in Acts 1 and verse 8, we have a a more fuller wording of what he says uh, to the apostles. He says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. You see, they are, to, they are to evangelize the Jewish homeland once again. But they're also to go and evangelize the half-breeds in Samaria, the half-Jews. And then after the half-Jews, they're to go out and preach the gospel to every creature. And what we see then in that verse actually gives you the structure of the book of Acts. And that's exactly what we see. They're going out and preaching and, you know, the gospel radiating out from the Holy Land. And this is really what Paul is referring to in verse 15, uh, verse 17. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. So Christ himself and his apostles preached to the Jews. But through his apostles and through the, the other missionaries and, and all the believers that went forth, and just think of the many thousands of believers from all parts of the Roman Empire and even Uh, further afield, who were Jews or had been converted to Judaism, who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, speaking languages that that, that only by the gift of tongues to preach the gospel that they could be reached in that way. They wouldn't have known, many of them would not have known Aramaic, seeing as the Babylonian Empire had, had collapsed many years. They would have understood Greek as their second language. And maybe a bit, but not really. And so that, 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 that Aramaic that they, these Galilean fishermen were speaking would, be, would have been insufficient. And so they received the gift of tongues, what? To preach Christ to these people coming in from farthest places. And I, think, I believe there are about 12 areas that are mentioned all over the place, from North Africa all the way into far Middle East, all the way up to the Caucasus. Those areas are, all, are, are mentioned, and then the gospel is preached to them. And there we have those 3,000 who then go abroad. And that's probably the reason why Paul says that there was a church established in Rome long before he got there. But these people had gone out. There was a church established in Antioch, uh, really at the north part of that eastern um, side of the Mediterranean. But these, gospel, these Gentiles have heard the same gospel that Paul had heard, that the Jews have heard and came and preached peace to them, uh, to you, which were afar off. So here we have Ephesus. So if you have got a good knowledge, you think of, the, if you think of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, the main landmass of Turkey, and now we're talking on the coast, um, not quite, yeah, pretty well near the coast, uh, on um, opposite Greece. So the Aegean Sea, the, the Aegean Sea we have there, and so we have all those, those islands, and then we have... Ephesus, just inland there. So that's a long way from the Holy Land. And so he's saying, to you who were far off, and to us, well, he doesn't say us, but and to them that were nigh, but he's talking of the Jews. And so because Christ has ordained the gospel goes forth, that he has ordained and appointed and gifted men and women to do that, it's as good as him being there and preaching himself. And so really the summary of, what, of what's being said here is that there's only one true gospel whereby mankind, Jew or Greek, must be saved. And there are so many other parts of the New Testament and even the Old Testament pointing to it that prove that. 
But just as we finish, I just want to make a, a brief point. He says brief, but you know that will need another five minutes at least. But th th just very briefly, because this is such an important thing, and I, I, as I've been in North America for a while now, you, 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 see, you see the effect of certain cults, sects, uh, um, aberrations, um, wanderings that are on this issue that are very popular today. You have something called replacement theology. You may have heard of this. There's a posh name for it, but I'll leave that. Replacement theology essentially teaches that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. So they don't believe that the Jews are any longer anything to do with God's people. Um, God has no future plans for the nation of Israel. Um, but Paul rebukes that. We don't believe that. We don't believe the Bible teaches that. Uh, but Paul rebukes that in Romans 11 when he's talking about, and we won't have that full quote, but he talks about that we have the branches of the... Of the um, I'll read a little. For if the casting away of them, it's from 11.15, Romans chapter 11, verse 15. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? He's talking of the Jews. For if the first fruit, that is the Jews, be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, you know, a Gentile, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, olive tree, boast not against the branches. In other words, boast not against the Jews. For if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I may be grafted in. Well, true. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. See, that very clearly points to the fact that there is no replacement. It's the same stock. It's the same root. It's the same Christ. It's the same gospel. It's just that some were broken off, not all, because, of course, all Old Testament, not all, the majority of Old Testament believers were Jews. And then we had some non-Jews. All the early uh, disciples, all the disciples, the 12 disciples, were all Jews. One of them was not a true Israelite indeed. But that was, that was Judas, of course. But they were all Jewish, as was all the early church, Jewish. And then we had the incoming of the Greeks, and then we have the need to set up the deacon, diaconate and, and all these things in, in Acts 6 and 7 and 8. No, uh, six. So that's really that idea of replacement theology, and that's not what the Bible teaches. There's also dispensationalism, which is very strong in this part of the world, and that teaches that the church is completely different and distinct from Israel. Uh, sometimes even to the degree of this, sometimes I go this far and say that the gospel is for the Gentile and the law is still for the Jew. But that's really an extreme. But in any case, their idea is this, that the church... As we know it, this New Testament church age is a sort of parenthesis. In fact, that's the word that they would use. It's put between brackets, and because God is not pleased with, the, with Jews uh, as, as a form of rebuke and as a form of punishment, he's now given grace to the Gentiles, and then they will be, they, they will be the church for a while, and then they will go um, away, they will be raptured, and then God will continue with the Jews. Now, that's, got, that's, that's fraught with all sorts of problems, which we're not going to go into at the moment. Um, but Paul dealt with that in the passage we just read in Romans 11. He's already dealt with that, that we have, there is the one, uh, the one church. And even, even, we were talking about Acts 6, uh, even Stephen, the, 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 the most holy of all the deacons, in his rebuking sermon to the Sanhedrin, he talks about the church in the wilderness, referring to uh, Moses and the three and a half million Israelites. So he had no problem with understanding one church. Well, that's what we've read in Ephesians 1. We've seen that now in Ephesians 2. We're going to continue looking at that, that there is two. Yes, there is Gentile, there is Jew, but they are one in Jesus Christ. And they're all saved by like faith as Abraham. And we see that in Romans 4 and verse 11. What's the correct view? Covenant theology. And that teaches that Israel is the church of the Old Testament 
and that the New Testament church consists of Jews and Gentiles. That's the simple and honest reading of the scriptures. That's what it is. And, and Paul says that later on in the, in the epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. He says, there's one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. So there's only one gospel that's able to save all that come to God by Christ. Now the Jews failed to keep the law, and so did we. And therefore it is all of grace by the one blessed Redeemer that we have Abraham a saved man, that we have Moses a saved man, that we have David a saved man, that we then come into the New Testament period and we, and we go uh, beyond the saved disciples, but we also go into um, uh, Philip with the, with the uh, Ethiopian eunuch and, and further afield. And it is only by grace that you and I are saved. So what does this mean? It means that Christ has come with his gospel, with his sacrifice on the cross to save all of his people and that we are one people and that Abraham is our spiritual father, that we have an inheritance of the saints and we have our basis, therefore, in everything that's written about the people of God in the Old Testament that's understood and revealed and fulfilled in the New Testament and then the promises for all of God's people. Hey, now, the Lord still makes a descriptive difference but they're all in heaven. In, 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 in Revelation, he describes uh, the 12 tribes, and then he says, and there was a, a multitude that no man could number, all together in heaven, all saved by grace. I just wanted to add that on at the end because it was just, this text is just so much against this dispensational and replacement thought and theology. Let's, let's pray as we've finished with the theology lesson. Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee, Lord, for our Saviour. That it is that one sacrifice on the cross that saves all the saints, Jew or Gentile. For that sacrifice is all-sufficient perfect, complete. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost all that come to thee through him. Lord, we do pray that thou will help us to understand God-honoring theology and God-honoring understanding of thy word, which is the same. O Lord, let us learn... Uh, that Christ suffered and died in our stead, in our place, for our failings, he is perfect. For our acceptance, he is rejected. For our healing, he bled and was broken. And what he did for us and for my soul and to make of us all disparate peoples into one church, into one temple, as we'll look at in the coming weeks, a temple of the living God. And Lord, as we come to a time of prayer, we do pray for thee to help us to pray. And knowing that there are Jews and Gentiles out there still who are the elect of God, but Lord, that's thy business. Thou hast given us the great commission and we pray, Lord, that thou will enable us uh, through this congregation, through its ministries, through our contacts with family and friends, to tell them something of this absolute, perfect and full saviour. Not just coming to save the sons of Abraham by the flesh, but all of his people the billions he will save and has saved. And Lord, we do pray for help in the time of prayer. Will thou draw nigh unto us and warm our hearts? Hear us for Jesus' sake. 
Amen.